Please be seated, and if you are an elementary-aged person, you can follow these lovely ladies straight out that door, and they will lead you in the right way. At least for now. Actually, I trust Eileen Kenworthy to lead, uh, probably lead me quite a good ways down the road. Um, Zeke is out. Okay, we can start. All right. Good morning. Hope you all are doing well today and that you survived the, the snowy uh, winter wonderland that we had here. It was quite a bit of snow. Hope you got to sled and do some things. And if you were like us and your kids were all at home, you uh, had a good time, played some board games, ate some snow, didn't get a whole lot of work done, and it was great. And here we are. Things are thawing, ready for the new week to start. Um, so we will be in week 35 of our study of the book of Hebrew. So the things that we're going to say today, if you've never been here before, they're not out of context. Actually, in a long context of a giant book that we've been in for a long time. And it's been a wonderful, difficult journey. Uh, Hebrews is a deep and profound and incredible book about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, that he is supreme over all things and that he is sufficient for our salvation and for our sanctification. And so if you want to know more about that book, I encourage you to dive back into our other 34 sermons in that. I'm not going to go over and recap them all right now. But we are going to be in chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 today. And in the context of this, we are talking about uh, what do we do when Scripture and culture meet and there is conflict in that process. So sometimes Scripture and culture meet and everything's great. Uh, oftentimes, most of the time, that is not the case. And last week we looked at honoring marriage and what that looks like. It's a wonderful sermon. If you had, didn't have a chance to be here last week or you want to go back and be encouraged, it was a really great sermon on a really difficult topic. And Trev did a fantastic job of that. And this week we are going to talk about money. So last week was marriage and this week is money. So if you've only been here for a couple of weeks, every week is not this hard. But Today's a good one. So we're going to look at what the love of money looks like in our lives and what God is really calling us to and how we as believers are supposed to interact with money in the world in which we live. In order to do that, we discussed last week this idea of three things that we need to be doing to evaluate when Scripture and culture meet and there is conflict. And the first of those things is that we need to think from Scripture or we need to think biblically. And the reason that we do that is because the Bible is the Word of God and it has authority over us for life and doctrine. We believe that very deeply in this church. And the, that's why when we get up here, it's not just us talking about what we think about something, but we, we preach from the Bible. So when we're looking at evaluating something, we have to first think from Scripture. And when I say think from Scripture, I mean like the whole thing. So from Genesis to Revelation, not just picking out verses, but the whole counsel of God. So when we looked at marriage last week, we started in Genesis to discuss what marriage looks like. And as we look at money today, we're not just going to be in the book of Hebrews. We're going to see the, the words of Jesus. We're going to read the words of Paul and look at the concept of what it is that money looks like in the life of a believer. But in order to do that, we're going to think from Scripture. Not think into Scripture, but stand in the meaning of the Word of God and then think from that place. The reason that is important is because Scripture says 
what is true. The second thing you need to do is we need to work to get out of sync with culture. Why is that? Because culture does not get to define what the truth is. Now, that's not a very popular statement, but the reason that that is a good statement is because what culture says is true changes. Even in my generation or generation before me, what culture has said is right and good and noble is very different from when I was born in 1976 to what it says now. Culture, their concept of truth, is mutable. It changes. It shifts a generation, two generations, a hundred years ago. You realize we're not that far removed from legalized slavery, right? It's not very far in history that we lived in a place where it was legal to own a person. And culture said it was okay. So if we use culture as our basis for truth and our basis for identity... And when you're asked to ask the question, who are you and what should you do? And if you use culture to define that, that's going to change. And that will leave you in an incredible place of disillusionment and despair. We see it all the time. So we think from Scripture, we work to be out of sync with culture, and we work to be in sync with the Word of God. I use that word work for both those things very intentionally because it must be an intentional process. You will not passively work to be out of sync with the world or passively work to be in sync with the Word of God. The opposite is true. If you're passive, you will be in sync with the way the world thinks and you will be out of sync with the Word of God. We know this because Romans 12 says that we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and not to be conformed to the world, to be pressed into the mold of the world. The world is constantly looking are, are giving us information that is contrary to the Bible. And we have three enemies as believers, the world and the flesh and the devil. Two of them are outside of us, one of them is inside of us, and all those things are pushing us away from the holiness that Christ has won for us. So we have to work to put in the work to be in sync with the Word. That's why we want to read the Bible. Not just so that we know stuff, but so that I know what the Word of God says. In order for me to be out of sync with the world... I have to be able to know what the truth is so that when I see error, I can say, well, that's not true. And I know that because I read it in the Bible. And so if we're not, if we don't know it, it's very hard to stay out of sync with those things. So when scripture and culture collide, we need to think from scripture to work to be out of sync with culture and to work to be in sync with, excuse me, work to be out of sync with culture and in sync with the word. Why? Well, we are the Vine Community Church. So in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, in looking at this reality that we are now under a new covenant, that we're not, this is in uh, 1218, he says you've not come from a mountain that can be touched and, and that is burning with, uh, with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm to a trumpet blast. He's saying, look, you're no longer coming to the mountain that the old covenant, Sinai. You're not coming to that mountain anymore. Instead, in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, Heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. That's who we are. We are the church of the firstborn. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your name is written in heaven. That word for church is the Greek word ekklesia, which is this compound word that can be translated the called out ones. Why are we supposed to look different from the world around us? Because we are the called out ones. 
The Bible says we've been called out of darkness into light. We've been called out of orphanhood into the family of God. We've been called out of death into life. We've been called out of the the kingdom of the evil one into the kingdom of God. We've been called out of all of these things and into something. And that thing that we've been called into is the body of Christ. Most of the New Testament was written to address this, to say who we are and how we should live. And so today we're looking at this question of, okay, so who does the Bible say that we are? And how does that affect how we live with regards to money? Okay. One of the things I'm going to ask John to pull up this, this tool that I've used. I've called it the, uh, the Worldview Onion. I came up with that, I don't know, probably from watching Shrek, like, ogres have layers. You know, we've got this, this idea that we're all deep or whatever. But the, so early, because we're in the Winter Olympics, uh, they came in and they were quipping with me today that this is maybe the, the worldview, um, what's it called? What's the thing with the big rock? Curling target. Or maybe the worldview everlasting gobstopper. But anyway, the whole point is that this is a tool that I've used, um, that I came up with. I didn't come up with it. It's, I just made it up here. But the, the idea is that that inner circle where it says what is real, that is your mind. That's our worldview. That second circle coming out uh, underneath worldview is this idea of what is true. And that is our system of beliefs. Above that is what is right or best, and that's our system of values. And on the very outside of that, of that onion is our behavior. That's what we actually do. So what we believe is real affects what we believe is true, affects what we believe is right or best, affects what we do. So today we're going to be talking about behavior. And anytime you're reading something in the Bible, you talk about this concept of, okay, what is the behavior that's being discussed? Like last week we looked at marriage, this week we're looking at money. But oftentimes you just stay on this outer circle. What we're going to do today is we're going to use this tool to work ourselves back in to determine what it is that we honestly believe is real. What do we believe is real about God? How does that affect what is true? How does that affect what I value, what is best? And then how does it affect what I do? Grace always works from the outside in. Grace transforms what is real in the life of a person. Excuse me, inside out. Thanks, my wife was like, no, wrong way. Grace always works from the inside out. Thank you. That's why I'm married. Goodness. Inside out. Legalism works from the outside in. Legalism tries to change all of our behavior to try to change what I think is true and right and best in order to, but it doesn't work that way. God works by transforming who we are on the inside and by transforming what we believe is real. So, we are going to use this tool a little bit as we dig into uh, these verses today. But before we do that, let's pray before we dive into the Word of God. So please pray with me. Lord, we come before your Word humbly and we confess, Lord, that talking about money is hard because it brings up all of this stuff. It brings up all of these things that are uncomfortable. It reveals inadequacies. It reveals failures in our life. It reveals a lot. The truth, Lord, is that it reveals our heart. And so we come to you trusting that you love us. We just sang all these songs about that nothing can take us away from you. So we claim that truth today as we enter into a difficult discussion about money. That we are saved by grace through faith. That we are called sons and daughters of God. That we are part of the family of God. And that we can come to the Bible and to evaluate the truth that you have given us in it. And that we can, in the confidence that comes from a risen Savior, walk out the truth that you're calling us to live. I want you to take a moment just in your own 
heart right now, we do this every week, that you would just pray and ask the Lord to teach you something. Just ask him to teach your heart, to teach your mind, to reveal to you what he's teaching you in the word. Also, always pray and ask for you to pray for someone around you. Maybe you know them, maybe you don't. Maybe the person next to you, maybe your spouse, maybe the person you owe money to. Pray for them. Pray and ask that God would teach them what he wants them to know today. Father, we come to you as your children. Please instruct us. Please teach us. We come to you with the bold, confident access that Christ has won for us, that we have read in this book that he is our advocate, that he is our high priest, and that we can approach the throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. Would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, and may you teach us, O Lord, in this time. In Christ's risen name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. So it says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Different versions say a few different things with your lives and maybe your character. Or, but the idea is that the, the, the expression of your life is to be free from the love of money. So recall the two things. One, to be free from the love of money. And two, to be content with what we have. So let's first dive into this idea of being free from the love of money. If I was asking you a question and say, okay, which topic does the Bible address more of, like with number of verses? Prayer and faith, or money slash wealth and possessions? You know, there are four times more verses in the Bible about money, wealth, and possessions than there are about prayer and faith. Why is that? Well, Jesus is going to answer that for us in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is probably the most disruptive sermon that's ever been written, spoken, preached. Of course, Jesus gave it. And Jesus says all manner of things, but he's addressing how it is that people of the kingdom are supposed to live. And in Matthew 6, verse 19, just to give it some context, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is Jesus saying about the relationship with money and treasure in our heart? I can see where my heart is if I follow the money. Where does my money go? And he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then, of course, he goes on right after that in this very famous uh, Matthew 6.25 about not worrying. Not worrying about money, about God's provision in our lives. So what is Jesus saying? He says that our heart will show us, or excuse me, where our money goes reveals what's in our heart. Just like he says that the overflow of the mouth reveals the heart. 
My heart is revealed by the words that I say, which is really hard. Like when, when I yell at my kids, that reveals my junky heart. There's no two ways about it. When my heart is right with the Lord, I don't yell at my kids. And when I am yelling at my kids, my heart is not right with the Lord. And the problem is in my own heart. And the Lord says the same thing, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. You can look, where does your money go? Where does your treasure go? That money is always for the Lord a matter of the heart. It is always a matter of the heart. And that you cannot serve both God and money. You can't love money and love the Lord. You might think, well, no one actually loves money. Well, then why does it say, keep your lives free from the love of money, if no one ever does it? Uh, People love money all the time. Like, love it. Not just love, they're like, no, I don't love money. I just love what money can buy. What is the difference exactly? I just love what money can do. Okay, great. How would you love something that's not Jesus when you're loving those things? And it says to keep your lives free from the love of money. Why? Because money is a heart issue with the Lord. So what are some signs that uh, this may be a struggle? And this is where things get really hard, right? Not just hard for you, it's hard for me. <laughs> um, Lord convicted my heart of a lot of things this week, so, and you're welcome to come talk to me about it later, but we don't have time for me to go into the giant list of what the Lord convicted me of while you're preaching about this. But first thing is a sign that maybe your heart may be struggling with loving money is that money causes you fear and worry. Thoughts of money cause you fear and worry. Maybe you have a bill coming due and you don't have money for it. Maybe that bill was something that was entirely out of your control. Your car broke down. You have a medical bill. Kid broke a leg. I don't know. Uh, You had a slab leak. You had all manner of things. And there's a bill coming due and you don't have money for it. Does that cause you worry? Does that cause you fear? That's a sign that your heart may be in the wrong place. And that's really hard right? You're like, what do you mean? Of course I'm going to worry if I don't have money to pay a bill. Really? Should you? Because as we're going to read in just a second here, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. God knows their need. Doesn't he much more know yours? So here's the next issue down. Maybe that bill has occurred because you were stupid and you spent more money than you have. And that bill is uh, to a credit card company. Or maybe you have debt up to your eyeballs and you can't even barely make the minimum payments. Does that cause you fear and worry? It probably should. And if it does, well, welcome to most people. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe your source of income is gone. Maybe you've had something that has drastically changed your financial situation. A spouse dies. A spouse leaves you. You have a child who is sick and the bills are piling up. You get COVID and you got a $200,000 bill. Who can pay that? No one that I know can just write a $200,000 check to the hospital. Maybe I need to know richer people, but... If you know somebody who can do that, maybe talk to them if you have that kind of a bill. 
But if thoughts of money cause you fear and worry, it is an indication that your heart is in the wrong place and that you are loving something else other than the Lord. And those words are not easy to say. I understand that it is hard. Why is it hard? Because money has a hold on our heart. Because money is how we express power in ourself. If I have enough money, I can do anything, right? What is most people's dream? To win the lottery, right? If I could just win the, you, I want you to write and give me the cash now. None of this payout over the next 20 years. Give me half the money, take it now, give me my $200 million and I will be fine. Have you ever researched the lives of lottery winners? Sad, 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 sad. Lotteries destroy far more lives than they redeem. But I thought money could solve everything. No, no it can't. And if the thought of money causes you fear and worry, it's a sign that your heart may be in the wrong place. Another thing, another sign is that you are hoarding money or things. Okay, so if you've ever seen Hoarders, that's not really what I'm talking about. I mean, though, yes, that show, though, gives anybody who watches that show immediately goes and cleans out their closets and, like, goes and cleans everything and then goes to the neighbor's house and is like, I'm throwing everything that I own away. But the idea of hoarding things and money, what does that really look like? Have you grown callous to the financial needs of others? Do you ever think about other people in your sphere that you know who need money that you have and you won't give it to them? That is hoarding money. That is pulling something that God has given you away and saying, I will not give this away, Lord. It is mine. I'm going to use it for what I think is best. Because when Carl was stupid and racked up a bunch of credit card debt, that's not my fault, Lord. That's callous towards someone else who is in need. If you look at the whole counsel of the Bible about um, money, we're called to lend with generosity, not just to lend, but actually to just give it away. Not to loan it to you, and certainly not to loan it to a friend at interest. That's explicitly prohibited in the Bible. But even just to give it to you. You need money, I have some, you don't, here's the money. Like we would do it with food. Well, I hope. If somebody's hungry, if your friend comes over and they're like, we're out of food, and you're like, oh, I've got a pantry full of food. Here, take my food. But with money, we're like, ah, maybe not. I don't want to give somebody money. That's like weird. Really? Jesus gave people money. Remember when Jesus and Peter needed to pay the temple tax? Peter's freaking out, and Jesus is like, oh, go grab a fish out of the water. Inside the fish, two coins, one for you, one for me, done. I've got this. I mean, really, Peter needs money. Jesus is like, oh, yeah, I put some in a fish. Go get it. If the story is bizarre to us. It's because we have no concept of Jesus' dominion over the world that we live in. Like, he is the God of a, of a, a cattle on a thousand hills, as the psalmist says. Jesus is not up there worrying or trying to balance his checking account. He doesn't have one. He owns it all. And at the end of it is just an eight that lies on its side. He has no limits. So for him to provide for something that we need, to provide actual money for us, should not surprise us. So have you grown callous? Because if you've grown callous to the financial needs of others, that means that you were only focused on 
yourself. And we're supposed to be focused on other people as believers. We're supposed to consider others as more important than ourselves. Hard words in the world in which we live. Another way that hoarding can come up is if you're always justifying, if you can justify not giving to the Lord. Well, Lord, I, I, once I get this debt paid off, then I'll tithe. Lord, once I, once I save for college, then I'll start giving. Lord, once I pay my house off, Lord, once I, if you, Lord, once I, then I'll tithe, you're wrong. The Lord tells us to give 10%. Why? He does not need it. I promise you. He's not up there going, oh, man. Jenny and Brandon are not giving their 10%. They're giving like 9.2. But I'm asking for, does that at all sound like the Lord to you? He is not a cosmic accountant. He is the God of all creation who saved us by grace through faith. And he wants us to give because it's an outflow of our heart. So hoarding can be seen by being callous, by being able to justify not giving or not tithing. And what if you say, well, I can't tithe because I've spent all the money that I have. Why did you do that? Why did you spend all the money that God gave you when he says, I gave you this, now give me 10% back? Somebody once told me that giving to the Lord is like a kid giving their dad fries that he bought anyway, right? So like I go to McDonald's and I buy my kids fries and they're like, hey dad, have a fry. I'm like, thanks. I'm like, I literally bought it. Like it's, I could just take those fries from you and then give you the fries and say, now I'm keeping them. No, but that's what it's like. If you have it, God gave it to you. If you're breathing, that's from God. If you can see, that's from the Lord. If you got money in your wallet, that's God's money. If you live in a house, if you drive a car, if you have shoes, if you have kids, if you have a dog, it's the Lord's. He is the owner of all things. And he only asks for 10%, not because he needs it, but because it's a way that we can actively demonstrate our trust in him. Another way that we can see that a love for money is grabbing onto our heart is when we are envious of others' money and possessions. Like if you can drive up here, drive up Western and Park and get some groceries at, at uh, Trader Joe's and take a nice long walk through Nichols Hills and only be grateful that God has provided so magnificently for those people. You probably don't have a problem with envy. And then if you can walk through the streets and pray for those people that have been given so much because God will require so much from them and to grieve what wealth has done to our world. Can you walk through Nichols Hills and do that? Or do you walk through there and think, man, their car, woo, I want that. Look at their house. And then you walk back to your house and you're like, oh man, I live in a house that is bigger than 99.9% .9 of the homes that have ever been lived in in the history of the world. And it's not enough for me. If that is a heart issue that you have, then you have a problem with a love for money. My final uh, point here with the love for money is a hard one, and that is if you are consistently spending money that you do not have. That means that you are living in debt. I don't mean that you have a mortgage. I mean, very few of us can write a check for a house. I get it. And the Bible is actually on, on debt, does not prohibit debt, all debt, it actually tells us to lend to other people at times, which means that they don't have something and I have it, and so I give it to them and they can pay it back, right? That's debt. But it's very, very clear on 
the dangers of debt, that the borrower is the lender's slave. Like if you listen to Dave Ramsey for 30 seconds, you get that, right? And of course, I encourage you to get that stuff. That stuff is biblical. It's great. I'm not up here to give a Dave Ramsey sermon or whoever. But the stuff that he's doing is based on the scripture. And it's very countercultural. But if you're consistently spending money that you do not have, it's because you want something that you do not need. And it shows where your love is. Like, how many things do you need? How many sweaters or how many shoes or how many, how much stuff do we really need? Like, we literally have to go, I have a cousin who says, I have to go to the stuff store to buy some stuff to contain more of my stuff, right? Go to the stuff store, I've got to get containers to store my stuff. <laughs> it's crazy. It's totally crazy. So, keep our lives free from the love of money. Why? Because it is an issue of the heart. Second thing we're supposed to do is to be content with what you have. So, the word content there... Um, has a lot of meanings. Like you have content, you have the word content, like a content on a website. You have a, the word container, right? And those things are all have a similar root. The word contentment means to rest or be satisfied. But the root word means that your desires are contained by what you already have. That your desires are contained within a boundary of what you already have. And what if you say, well, what I already have is not enough. Okay, so... Quick side hustle here, uh, side issue. Being content is not, the, uh, is not the absence of ambition. Like if you are working and you want to work to earn more money, like do that. God does not have a problem with being wealthy. Look at that. Look at that. Just turn back to Hebrews 11 and look at the number of people in that hall of fame of faith that were egregiously wealthy. Abraham was exceedingly wealthy. David was exceedingly wealthy. Solomon was like excruciatingly, exceedingly wealthy, wealthy beyond comprehension. Why? Lots of reasons. Some of those guys in there were dirt poor. Jesus didn't have a house. Because how much money you have is not really all that important. Some people have lots of money. Some people have less money. Some people have a gift of earning money. Those people are awesome. I love it when someone has the gift of earning money. It's like everything that touch turns to gold. It's amazing. Somebody can like start a business, boom, and it's off. I, I can't do that. It's incredible to watch that. The kicker is that if you're given a lot of money and you're wealthy, what does God want you to do with it? Well, he wants you to give it away. And he wants you to be generous, which is what we're going to talk about here in a minute. But mainly he wants you to be content with what you have doesn't mean you don't strive to make more. And also, by the way, the contentment container changes as you, as you grow. So Jenny and my grocery bill now is more than we used to make a long time ago because we, ha we feed six, four kids and then a whole bunch of other kids that are always in our house. So we feed a lot of mouse. It's wonderful. I don't know how many people run through our house in a weekly time. 60 humans run through our house every week. We feed them. That costs money. Costs literally more than I used to make when I was, we were both in school and I was in seminary and I was making 800 bucks a month. So I could not feed my family now at $800 a month. My container is now 
bigger. But were we content then? Yes. I also worked really hard to make more because 800 bucks in 2003 was not very much money, and it's even less now. But it's, that's, it's not this concept of not having ambition or to not strive to work hard or to grow a business or to make money. That's not the point of it is. The point of the question is where is your heart? And to be content with what you have. So the opposite of content would be discontent, which is this um, profound sense of dissatisfaction. Do you have a profound sense of dissatisfaction where you are at financially? Are you like, I'm so weighed? Or is your concept of, and the Lord has provided everything I need? If we flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is talking to Timothy, giving him incredible advice on how to be a pastor. And he talks in chapter 6, verse 3, just to give the context of this, because the, uh, the passage you will have heard before, but the context is this. In verse 3, talking about the love of money that we have. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind. By the way, if you're around people in the church, by the way, and they're always interested in controversies and quarrels and words that result in envy, strife, and malicious talk, be really careful. Those people are, in, they are toxic. And Paul here calls them false teachers. Very dangerous. But he says, and those who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. You don't have to watch a whole lot of TV to see that there's a lot of those folks out there. But in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of it. You came in with zero material possessions and you will leave the world the exact same. But if we have food and clothing, we will be what? Content with that. Or would you be content with just food and clothing? Honestly, I don't know that I would be. I don't really want to answer that question in front of, in front of everybody, but I would be like, I also need a car. Because I think like in Oklahoma City, you actually need a car. So I would put that in there with the uh, food and clothing part. But we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into what? Prosperity and glory, ruin, and destruction. Answer me this. How contrary is that to the message of our culture? Who says men who want to get rich. How many people want to get rich? If you were to just ask your man on the street, who wants to get rich? Like hands would shoot, I want to get rich. That's like, that's it. Well, he says those who get rich plunge into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have even wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That a love for money can even compete with a love for our Savior. So we are to keep our lives free from the love of money. We're to be content with what we have, to be satisfied with what God has already given us. Why? Look at this, because God has said, never will I leave you, 
never will I forsake you. It's a quote out of Deuteronomy 31 where Moses is moving the mantle off of himself. He's telling the people at the end of his great sermon in Deuteronomy that I am dying. I'm not going into the promised land. The mantle is passing to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. I've given you the promised land and I'm going before you. You're going to walk in and take what I've given you and I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The idea of leaving is this process of leaving behind, right? Like you're there, you can't keep up, I'm gone. Forsaking is this idea of I reject you. You stay over here, don't ever come near me again. God does not do that to you. To his child, he will never leave you. And so in verse six, we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, out of Psalm 118, I will not be what? afraid. What can man do to me? What can that debt collector do to me? Well, honestly, they can, they can take your house from you. But what can they do to you? Can they steal your soul? Can they keep you from going to heaven? Can they tell God not to love you anymore? What can they do really that matters? Nothing. They have not one bit of leverage over your eternal life. None. Nothing in your bank account does. You realize that, right? Nothing in your financial life has any leverage over your eternal life. That is by grace through faith. And we have a high priest who maintains that for us. So, back to our um, worldview onion there. If we look at the outside rim of that, right? What it is that we do. And we're, you're listening to this, and you're like, okay, I may have some issues with the love of money in my life. I may have some issues with contentment in my life. So how does this address it? Well, it says in verse 5, we can be content because what? God has said he'll never leave us or forsake us. So underneath my behavior, what I think is right and best is that I should live a life free from the love of money and be content with what I have. That is based on what truth? It's based on the truth that God says he will never leave me and never forsake me. And that is based on what reality? It is based on the reality that God is good and that God is faithful. And because he is good and faithful, I can trust in him. That is what is real. The reality in our monetary lives is that God is good and he is faithful and he is for you. That is what is real. Because that is real, it is true that he will never leave you and forsake you. Do you see that? That is a belief that you can have. God will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Do you believe that today? If you do not, then you do not believe it is real that he is good. And I will address the core issue of your worldview is that you must first believe that God is good before you believe that he will never leave you. If you believe that he'll leave you, you have to go back to the core nugget of that belief, which is that he is good. The Bible is so clear that God is good. He is good and he does good, says the psalmist. Teach me your ways. So it is true that God will never leave you and forsake you. Because of that, your value can be this, that you can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And because you are able to say that with confidence, you can then keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Do you see how this process works? 
And this is only a tool. This is not some kind of infallible thing. It is something I've used to help me think through things before. Really great done in community. I have a behavior that is wrong. What is it that I am valuing that I think is right and best? What is it that I think is true? What is it that I think is real? And does that line up with the truth of the Word of God? Because the truth of the Word of God is that He will never leave you or forsake you. And most of us, so many people live their lives thinking that at some point they can screw up bad enough that God will say, you know what, I'm done with you. Guess what? You don't get to make that choice. God already did. He chose you. He calls you his son and his daughter. And he says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Why is that important? Because everyone else does. We be honest, people die and they're not here anymore. We have friends that turn their back on us. We have people, the people that we care about the most, spouses, children, uh, parents who will turn their back on us. God never will. Not because I say it and not because you believe it, but because he is good. Do you see how that process works? Everything hinges on his goodness. If you believe that he is good, you have to believe that he will never leave you. Then you can confess that he is your helper, that you won't have to be afraid. Then you can trust him enough to let your lives be free from the love of money. Okay, so what do we do with some of this? I want to leave you with three things. So the person whose life is free from the love of money and who is content with what they have will look like this. We as the church can say three, these three things. They're lots of things, and I'm just making it three because they usually come up with three things, and that's just how it goes. It could be five, it could be ten. Today it's three. So first thing is that we are free. We are free as followers of Jesus. Free from what? You're free from the shame of having all this debt. Let go of it. Excuse me, Jesus paid the debt of all mankind. I think he can manage your bank account. Guess what, however? That may mean that you do not live the life that the culture says you're supposed to have. It may mean you drive a car that burns blue smoke out the back. It may mean that you wear a pair of shoes that aren't super stylish. It may mean that you go somewhere to buy a sweater or a pair of jeans that are really on sale. It may mean that you shop at Aldi instead of, what's the other place that's really expensive? Yeah, yes, thank you. So it may mean that you do that. It may mean that you uh, drink water instead of Coke. I don't know. It may mean that you make your own coffee instead of going to Starbucks. It can look like a bunch of different things. But it won't look like what the world says you're supposed to look like. And I'll be honest, if we sat here and talked about it, you don't want to look like what the world says you're supposed to look like. What, do you want to be sad and broken and hopeless? I mean, that's what the world really offers. It really is. But you know what? Christ has set you free. And you can be free from the love of money. How do I know that? Because it says it right here. We can be free from the love of money. But mostly we can be free from the weight of our failure. I can be free from the worry and the fear that money causes in me. Once again, that may mean that you have to make some massive changes. You may have to go home, and last week we talked about marriage, and this week we're talking about money. You're like, would you let up already? But we're looking at it. What if you go home and look at your budget and say, Lord Jesus, this is our budget. How can we glorify you with it? Cut us deep, O oh Lord. Cut out the love of money from it. And may what we bring in bring glory to you. 
that you are free. If you're feeling today bound up by worry about your finances, by fear that money brings you, I'm telling you today that Christ can set you free from that. But you're going to have to do it his way. You're going to have to get out of debt. You're going to have to change how you're doing. You're going to have to tithe. You're going to have to give money away to people. It's okay. He can set you free. So we are free. We are confident. What are we confident in? According to this passage, in what is our confidence? What is it? Is it in my ability to balance my budget? Is it in my ability to do a pivot table on a spreadsheet? Is it in my ability to find a really good accountant? No. In what is our confidence? It's in God. That's the center of this onion. It's in the goodness of God. God is good because he is good. He will never leave me or forsake me. Because he will leave or never leave me or forsake me, I can say and I can believe that he is my helper and that I can ask him for help. And because of that, I can live a life free of the love of money and be content with what I have. So we are confident. We can be a people who step out into this chaotic world and say, we are going to live a life free from the love of money. And we can do it with confidence because we know that God will help us. And finally, we are generous. So this idea of generosity is obviously wonderful and it's delightful and it's so close to the heart of God. Let me ask you a question. Um, when you consider generosity, what do you think about? Think about philanthropists that have billions of dollars who give away millions of dollars? Do you think about, what do you think about when you think about generosity? Our model should be God the Father. What did he give? He gave us Jesus. Is that generous? Um, yes. We should give like God gives. Don't give your children, people, by the way. I mean, I'm just not saying that. We, our heart should be to give it all away. To give it all away. Like if you make money, how much of your budget is set aside to giving it away to poor people? Like, you know the guy on the side of the street? I don't usually advocate giving money to people, by the way, because they're going to go buy him drugs. Sometimes it can be very complicated. So like if you're giving a guy that's out on the street 100 bucks and he's obviously high, you're probably not helping. However, or if you're giving him $4. But what if you took that person and went and go bought him food? Or you said, hey, I'm not going to give you any money, but I'm going to put you up in a hotel. And here's where our church is. You can come. Hey, I know where the shelter is. Can I drive you there? Is that crazy? Yep. Totally crazy. And I'm not, by the way, saying that like if you're like a single lady that you should pick up some weird man off the street and drive into a shelter. Okay, please, please pump the brakes on that. I mean, be a person who is generous because you are free and free people are generous people. And so we want to be a church that gives generously. You're not, I do not, okay. We are, I don't want to talk about you giving money to the church today. Is that clear? When we have our um, stewardship stuff, we traditionally don't even ask for money because honestly what we want is we want God to have your heart. And so what I want you to do today is I want you to evaluate these things. If the Lord, if the Holy Spirit has, has pricked your heart about anything, don't leave your seat until you've talked with him about it. 
and asked him what you should do. If you're afraid, you can come talk to me. You can come talk to somebody in your life group. You can shoot me an email. You can fill out that little prayer card. You can ask, you say, I'm, whatever your problem is, say, I need help. Ask for it. We're here to help each other. If your car broke down and you don't have, guess what? I, we know a mechanic. Somebody here, know, somebody here and here can probably fix your car. Just if you've got a bill that you're terrified about, would you, would you talk to somebody about it? Talk to the Lord and then share it with this group of people. It's the most generous group of people I've ever met. But you've got to live out that confidence to confidently go before the Lord and say, I need help. I need help. And that may mean that I need some money. It's a hard thing to do. But I'm telling you that when you do that, the Lord will provide in unbelievable ways. Um, to end real quick, just um, so Jenny and I were, were missionaries for years. And when you do that, you go and you ask people for money, right? You say, okay, we, the Lord's calling us to do this. Would you want to join us? Blah, blah, blah. But you probably heard it a hundred times. The reality is that when you uh, live like that, uh, the Lord provides in incredible ways. Like, to the dollar, things that you needed, a check that somebody wrote two months ago that just got mailed to you today is the exact amount that you needed to pay off something. It happens all the time. So what I'm calling you guys to do right now is to live out a life that is that dependent upon the Lord. Your income, your money is all from the Lord. You were called to be a steward of it. So hold it loosely. Be generous, be free, and be confident. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for hard words about big things. I thank you that the word of God does not shy away from the realities of life, but that you speak directly into those things. You speak directly into the things that have caused so much pain and destruction and devastation in our world. And you call us to live lives of light and freedom in light of all of that. Lord, I just pray today that if someone is weighed down today, that they would not leave that way, but that they would be encouraged today, that you would encourage their heart to trust in you because you are good, to trust that you will never leave them or forsake them, even if they feel utterly left and utterly forsaken, Lord. Remind them of your goodness. And by whatever financial uh, situation someone is in today, Lord, would you give them confidence, Lord Jesus, to ask you for help? The freedom to ask someone here for help if they need it. And the boldness to do it now. Would you help us, Lord Jesus, to trust you with our heart and in doing so to trust you with our wallets and to be willing to release every penny of it to you. Help us worship you in response. Lord, help us to take this time as we sing to consider what you are teaching us and to respond to you. Help us not leave here today, Lord Jesus, until we have done something with what you're calling us to do. In Christ's risen and exalted name, we pray these things. Amen. Stand and sing this final song of God's goodness, his provision, his love our faith in all of that.
It's over. The Sermon on Money is over, so you can breathe a big sigh of relief. And I want you to walk out of here. I really want you to walk out of here embracing the freedom that God has given you. I want to reiterate that again. Christ has come to set us free, free from sin, free from shame, free from debt, free from all of the junk that keeps us from trusting him. So if money is something that's keeping you from trusting the Lord, go after it. Attack it with the confidence that God is with you. He will not leave you, and he will not forsake you. And go in peace.